Okay, the only announcement that I'm aware of this evening is to let folks know that uh, uh, we've been praying for Selena, praying for her family. She was uh, tested. She had been t gotten over it and had gone like a week, and then she'd gotten tested like eight or nine days ago, and she still it still was positive, so she got tested again on Monday, and it came back negative. So she's going to be back uh, taking care of the church, and she's very, very grateful for all the help uh, that we gave her during during this time. Is there another announcement? I can't think of one. Just just pray that we can get past all this COVID nonsense and get things back to doing things regularly in all of our schedules and everything. We need to really pray for that. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin this evening, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. This is your opportunity to make sure you're in right relationship with the Lord, ready to study, ready to focus on God's word. And that means that if we have any sin, we confess it, and that means to admit or acknowledge it to God, and instantly he forgives us, cleanses us, restores us to our ongoing walk with him. So let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're just so thankful that we can come to you in prayer. We can rely on you, lean upon you, take refuge in you throughout every day, that living our lives with the, the uncertainty that's around us in many ways can be wearying on most people. And there are many people during this time who, because of isolation, uh, don't see a lot of other people. There's a lot of loneliness going on. There's a lot of... Um, uncertainty, people worried, people anxious. Some folks are still don't have a job, struggle with income. And Father, we just pray for each one. And we pray that you would be, you really use your word to challenge people that there is hope and that there is a comfort in your word. And that actually every day of our lives has been lived in uncertainty. We just don't recognize it. We count on things being normal and stable in the same way every day, and they, and they usually are, but now we realize how uncertain things actually are. So, Father, we pray that you would be a comfort to those who worry, those who are concerned, those who are really struggling with, with some profound uh, financial issues and job issues, and, Father, tonight as we study, help us to understand your plan for the human race in terms of these divine institutions. And we pray for our nation that there will be more and more who would recognize that the path that we have been on is self-destructive. We have, uh, for many in this country, they have declared you and biblical truth the enemy. And, Father, we pray that that might change and that during this time many will come to an understanding of the gospel. We pray in Christ's name, amen. All right, this evening we're going to move ahead into the next divine institution, which is family. First divine institution is personal responsibility. Without personal responsibility on the part of both partners in the marriage, both the husband and the wife, 
there will not be a successful marriage. Without personal responsibility in the family, there will not be a successful family. Each of these divine institutions uh, fit together. I want to begin with a six-point summary of what we covered last week on marriage. First of all, God instituted marriage with the creation of Adam, and then from his rib, from his side, he made his wife Eve. This tells us that marriage is not a social contract. Marriage is not something that has been developed in human history because somehow it seemed to work out better than not having marriage. It's not something that's a social convention. But when we look, even if you study sociology and you study more primitive tribes, those that did not recognize marriage or had some sort of matriarchal culture, there were problems. They never really succeed. They may survive, but they didn't really succeed. So we see that marriage is instituted by God, and anything short of that is going to result in uh, serious problems within the culture serious chaos within that civilization. Second point is that as the, our creator, as our creator, God is the one who defines marriage. We can't come along and change the definition. Uh, we have tried. There are countries who have changed their definition, and now we recognize same-sex marriage. But one of the problems with changing the definition of marriage is to what authority do you uh, do, do you go to get your definition of marriage? There are some who believe in polygamy. There are some who believe in uh, not only homosexual marriage, but adult child unions. Where do you draw your lines? How do you understand these distinctions? God defines marriage as one man and one woman for life, and it's not dependent on the changing morals, the changing lifestyles, the shifting cultural factors Marriage is designed, in fact, to shape culture and not to be shaped by culture. And the way marriage shapes culture is through the family and through the correct and proper operation of the family. The third thing we saw is that marriage, uh, marriage is built on the first divine institution of individual responsibility. So when you have a man and a woman who are not living responsibly, then there's going to be chaos in that relationship, and it's not going to be successful when they are living in light of their sin nature and each living for their own personal desires to be fulfilled, and they're living on the basis of emotion and not on the basis of objective truth then that marriage is going to not be a happy marriage, and it's going to have all kinds of problems and difficulties. So you have to have that first divine institution of personal responsibility, and ultimately the authority in the first divine institution is God. There has to be a recognition of God as the ultimate authority in the life of the uh, husband and in the life of the wife. The father is the ultimate authority. And then when you get into the marriage, there's also an authority structure. Each divine institution has an authority structure. And we saw that in the, in the marriage, the head of the wife, the one in authority, is the husband. And together they are the authority over the children that come into the union. So marriage is built on that first divine institution if children are reared without being taught those their responsibilities in life and not being care, able to carry them out carry them out because they're just living for their own own desires without self-discipline and responsibility then they're never going to be the man or woman that is needed in order to have a successful marriage the fourth thing we studied was that marriage was instituted before the entry of sin into human history. Now, this is really important. You've heard me say it so much, you probably think, don't think much of it anymore. But it is, it is a groundbreaking reality. And that groundbreaking reality is that, uh, that in perfect environment, God designed responsibility in perfection. 
Some people think that the perfection means, well, I can be irresponsible. I can just do whatever I want to whenever I want to do it. But that's not how God planned things. God did not design the human race to just be frivolous or in, or in living on the basis of whatever he wanted to do or to be lazy. There were, there was, uh, there were responsibilities that needed to be taken care of even in the Garden of Eden. So uh, personal responsibility, marriage, and family are all designed to function in perfect environment, and they have a positive purpose. When we get to the second half, we see that it's a negative purpose to restrain the effects of sin. But marriage, I mean, responsibility, marriage, and family are all designed to build a civilization to accomplish the goal that God uh, gave man the responsibility he gave them to uh, to rule over uh, all of the animals, to uh, rule over the earth, and to develop all and learn all about the earth and to develop all of the natural resources. So marriage is instituted before there's an entry of sin, and then it is destroyed, not destroyed, but it is corrupted because of sin. That's the fifth point. Sin brought chaos into the whole creation as well as into marriage because now you have two people who are going to be self-centered. They are inherently self-absorbed because that's the orientation of the sin nature. They are inherently arrogant because that's the nature of the sin nature. And that arrogance and self-absorption is always going to uh, manifest differently in different people. But whenever you have two sinners together, there's always going to be a measure of competition to see who's boss. And God has already established what those structures were supposed to be. And when God outlined, as, as I pointed out last time, when God outlines the consequences of sin, not the sin penalty, that's already happened. They're spiritually dead and they're uh, have been separated from God. Now he's going to tell them what the uh, what the uh, other consequences are. And the woman is going to have a desire to control and dominate her husband. And the but but God says, but the man will rule over you. He's still in the authority position uh, in the marriage. And then there are other consequences. She's going to have pain in childbirth so that that which she was mandated to do at the very beginning to be fruitful and multiply was not painful. Now it's going to be extremely painful, and it is a constant reminder of the curse of sin. For the man whose job was to take care of the garden was to watch over it, to tend it. Now it's going to produce thorns and thistles. Now there's going to be problems. It's going to be difficult in order to accomplish the task because uh, the the uh, all the vegetation has changed. The trees are different. The uh, crops are different. Everything is going to be different. Before that, he hardly had to do anything to make it productive. Now there are going to be problems. So together now, the, the problem with the husband and wife is they have a mission by God, and they're both going to encounter difficulties accomplishing that, that mission. So marriage isn't necessarily going to be easy for, for people. Sixth thing is at the end, I talked about two enemies of marriage. The first was homosexuality, and the second was polygamy. A couple of things I did not mention. Number one, no civilization has ever before legitimized homosexual marriage. And there's a very practical reason for that, is that when you have homosexual marriage, it destroys fertility and production of the next generation. And one of the things that has been popular in uh, in the uh, pagan culture, the, the development of pagan culture in the United States and Western civilization is the desire to reach zero population growth under the misguided thought that we were overpopulating. This has been a big deal ever since the 60s. We have too many people on the planet. Uh, in, in, in this kind of leftist th- uh, philosophy, the human beings are the greatest enemy to the planet. You know, we're we're worse than anything else because of the consequences of sin. They just don't realize how, how much we are an enemy 
of uh, of everything because of, of sin. We're the ones who corrupted and and uh, caused so much calamity and chaos in civilization. But civilization can't go forward if a new generation is not born. And when you reach zero population growth, then your civilization begins to deteriorate and begin to decrease. And we've never fully uh, expanded over the face, uh, face of the earth. A lot of times you'll hear people talk about how wonderful it was during the time when the American Indians were roaming the plains and they go back to this idea of this very romantic and unrealistic idea of the uh, uh, of the uh, innocent aborigine, the innocent native. And if you study anything about uh, the American Indians, uh, they didn't have great sanitation. They didn't have a way to really take care of and get rid of all of their uh, garbage because everybody produces garbage and produces some kind of refuse that needs to be taken care of. And what would happen at, at, um, in their civilization during that time is they would just, they were nomads. Why? Because once they trashed an area, they would have to move to another area. And then they would be there until they trashed that area and defiled the water and everything else. And then they would go uh, to another, another area. And so because they didn't have a lot of technology, uh, all they could do was move on. They couldn't treat all of that with civilization. I mean, it was it, the, the the plains of Texas was overcrowded uh, when you had uh, the Comanches and the Apaches and some of the other tribes uh, roaming around simply because of the way they handled these things. But once you had civilization come in and begin to develop uh, technology to treat everything, then uh, a an area of land that could barely support an Indian tribe now could support uh, thousands and thousands of people because of advanced technology. So this idea that we're going to somehow expand to the point that we can't feed ourselves, I don't know if you ever heard any lectures on this, but I remember even in high school hearing hearing people talk about what was going to happen in the great famines of the 70s that millions and millions of people, hundreds of millions of people on the planet would starve to death because we couldn't be able to feed them all. But obviously technology advanced and we've been able to do that. And I don't recall even thinking about going hungry for for three hours in the 70s. You know, it was never a problem, and I don't. I think it was some problem in some um, some areas in Africa and maybe India and some other areas. But it goes back to a technology issue. So we haven't had those problems, but because the liberal mindset has excluded God and His providence from their thinking, they they operate independent of truth, and so they're constantly operating on that fantasy that's the result of suppressing the truth of God in unrighteousness. So civilization, for it to advance, has to have marriage between a man and a woman so they can have children, and so they can produce the next generation and the next generation. So homosexuality on the very face of it is self-destructive. It doesn't lead to the fulfillment or the advance of civilization. The other enemy that I pointed out was polygamy, and often you hear people say, well, God allowed polygamy in the Old Testament. God allowed sin in the Old Testament. God allowed Adam to eat the fruit and plunge the whole civilization into sin and cause the curse. God allowed a lot of things in his permissive will, but that doesn't mean it was right just because some of the um, progenitors of the Jewish race were uh, polygamists doesn't make it right. Adam, w- I mean, Abraham was not. Isaac was not. Jacob was, as I pointed out last time, simply because he got, uh, got uh, deceived by his uh, father-in-law and he veiled the older sister and that wasn't the one Jacob thought he was marrying. Later on, God made it clear in the Mosaic Law that kings were not to multiply wives. And every example of polygamy in the Bible is negative. It's never a good situation. So we discussed that last time. There are two other enemies of marriage that I want to bring out tonight. The first is sexual licentiousness. 
And this is something that has been true of our culture ever since the free love first came forward in the in the 60s and was exacerbated because now you had birth control and you had other things that were that were possible so the cons- natural consequences of of uh, sex outside of marriage which is pregnancy uh, could be uh, taken care of so you have the rise of sexual licentiousness which involves either premarital sex between those who are not married or it is adultery which involves sexual relations between two uh, uh, two people who are not uh, they're not married to each other but one of them is married to someone else and so this is the enemy of marriage because it leads to the breakdown of marriage and it leads to the destruction of the family and causes all kinds of uh, consequences that reverberate not just for the next 10 or 15, 20 years through the next generation affecting the children, but also it will affect the grandchildren and go on beyond that. So it also has an economic consequence. This goes to one idea you hear from some conservatives that you don't have to have these social laws because you can have, be economically conservative and socially liberal. Well, the problem, one of the consequences of liberalizing the divorce laws so much where just have a multiplicity of divorces is the economic consequences. Hundreds of thousands of fortunes have been totally wiped out by divorce. People have divorced and they have lost everything. They both lose everything they have and the only person who gets rich is the lawyer. And and the children are left. I can't tell you how many times I have been a pastor in different churches where I have had women who have been just devastated financially in a marriage, and she's the one who ends up with the, I mean, in a divorce, and she's the one who ends up with the children and never recovers. And I, I saw that in, in every church I've been in. I've, I've seen this happen to a number of women. And then that in, in many, many parts of our culture, that throws these women onto welfare because they have no other way uh, to sustain themselves. So you, you divorce, and the, the casual sex and divorce just increases the pressure on the government to help all these people, and then it's taken advantage of, and that makes it even worse. So uh, the sexual licentiousness eats away at the stability of a civilization. And then last, a society that promotes and facilitates narcissism. A, A society that promotes and facilitates uh and fosters, fosters nar- narcissism. That's a better word, a society which fosters narcissism. And that's the kind of civilization we have. How does it foster narcissism? Well, if you diminish parental discipline on children, then children become more and more self-absorbed. They just do whatever they want to do. They, they become spoiled brats, and they do whatever they want to do, and they uh, become more and more self-absorbed, and everything is about them. And then when they uh, grow up and they get out of the home, uh, they're all nar- narcissistic, so this affects their their diet. They eat whatever they want to eat, and that leads to problems with obesity and problems with diabetes and problems of uh, all kinds of problems with health. And this is going to reverberate, especially as they as they get older. And you have narcissism in their sexual appetites, and you have they get the narcissism in their economics because they want this and they want that, and every bank's ready to give them a credit card. And next thing you know. They've got six or eight credit cards, and they've got fifteen, twenty thousand dollars in debt on top of each one. And then they thought they ought to go to college, so they took out a lot of college loans, and they owe about one hundred and fifty or two hundred thousand dollars in college loans. And then they go bankrupt, and who's going to take care of this? And it has again a horrible economic impact on the culture. So all of these things that destroy marriage and attack marriage are assaults on civilization. That's why it's important to maintain 
the high degree of a of morality in a civilization. The founding fathers, and I've read you the quotes, all recognize that only a moral people could sustain this government because once you get into immorality and irresponsibility, they understood that the, the dominoes and the divine institutions would fall. Once you have in, in once you have irresponsibility, then you have uh, problems in marriage, problems in family. And eventually you have problems in government because you see a generation or two of people who are raised in narcissism and irresponsibility now become elected to various government offices and they still run those on the basis of their permissiveness, on their amorality and on their uh, their sexual licentiousness. We just have more and more problems with this in government. So all of this leads to the collapse of a nation. And that is why you have Psalm 11.3 that says, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? A statement of helplessness. If the culture around us implodes because they've rejected the divine institutions, what do we do? Well, the solution is always the same solution. It's we trust in God. God will provide for us and God will take care of us. So when we look at our comparison and contrast in worldviews, we see that Christianity holds to a very set uh, system of reality. We, our ultimate reality is a personal infinite God who is perfectly righteous, just, and love. That sets the standards, the ethics. That's where values come from. He created man in his image and likeness, And right and wrong is defined by God because he is the creator. He's the one who wrote uh, the manual, and that's the Bible. And he wrote it, so you buy a car, you get the owner's manual, and you have to read that to find out exactly what you should do and what you shouldn't do. And if you ignore it, then you're going to have problems with your car. Then you have knowledge. Knowledge ultimately comes from the Bible. The Bible gives us the parameters and the structure but we can learn many other things through empiricism, through our use of reason, but it has to be within the context of the Bible. And marriage is a creation institution. God uh, institutes it in the structure of his creation of man, and so he defines what marriage is. But in the secular view, the modernist view, postmodernism, the the only ultimate reality is eternal matter. There's no spirit, there's no mind, there's no basis for personality or or ethics. And you'll find today that in psychology, they're taught that everything is just chemical. It's just a matter of how you're put together. There's no such thing as the immaterial part of man. Everything is material. Everything is the result of certain certain chemical reactions that take place inside, inside your body. Ethics are defined by man rather than God, and so he can make the rules up however he wants, whenever he wants, because they're, they're culturally determined. Uh, knowledge is based on pure experience and reason and is not grounded on anything that has uh, uh, any sort of stabil- eternal stability. And then marriage is just a social invention, a social construct, and man defines it. So once again, we have our five divine institutions. I've already talked about the first three. The second three are government, nations, and Israel. And we'll get to those after we finish up with family. And those are designed to restrain evil. And that's a very important observation because in a fallen world, it gets completely out of control, which is what happened before the flood. And so government is designed by God in order to restrain evil and nations as well, that because of the evil of man wanting to expand over the earth or or to localize instead of expanding over the earth and to create his own kingdom, uh, God had to stop that by uh, dividing the languages. And then Israel, because all of mankind had rejected God, he had to call out a special people through whom he would reveal his plan and his purpose. So these are the divine institutions. So on the third divine institution, what is a family? We have to have a definition. So first of all, the family is the union of one man and one woman. That goes back to divine institution two. The union of one man and one woman in marriage 
which has been blessed with children, either naturally or through adoption. This is the family. It's a narrow definition of family. Uh, we have, uh, you can talk about the extended family where you have aunts and uncles and cousins and these develop out into a clan and then develop out into, into a tribe. But the Bible focuses on the family as the highest level of authority and responsibility. And the reason we'll see for that is because the family is the training institute for children. It doesn't take a village, Hillary Clinton, that violates Scripture. It takes a family. It takes a mother and it takes a father working together because they each contribute vital things in the uh, upbringing of the children in terms of developing their personalities, developing their self-discipline, developing their responsibilities. Second thing we can say about a family is it's an organic union that combines father, mother, and children into a cohesive unit. So a family needs to develop that sort of close-knit relationship where they work together. They are designed by God to work at fulfilling what I call the creation mandate. And that is that it doesn't change, it's not abrogated because of Adam's sin, it's modified, but man is still given the responsibility to, to go out and to uh, bring the earth under his dominion. He is to exercise dominion and rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the beasts of the field. And he is to take this natural world, this world that has uh, uh, no structure to it, and he is to develop it. You know, part of this, you see so many businessmen who've done quite well in real estate, they'll go out, they'll see how the city is expanding, and they go out there and they see ranch land or farms, and it's basically in a state of uncontrolled uh, development. And what they see is what they can do to bring all of this into order by dividing up the land and putting in streets and creating wells and building houses and bringing that into a useful structure for the development of, of the human race. Now, the basic unit is the family. It's not the tribe. It's not, not the clan. Thus, we see as a conclusion from this is parents, father and mother, are designed by God to be the, be the integral force, the necessary force for rearing and training their children in order to enable them to become mature adults who live lives to glorify God and to be a blessing to those around them and to also be involved in this process of expanding man's, mankind's, the human race's dominion over the face of the earth. And it's a responsible dominion. You know, those verses that I keep taking everything back to in Genesis, in uh, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, are hated by pagans. They're hated by, they were hated by the Nazis, because the Nazis were deep into pagan ecology. Mark Musser has done some masterful work historically in his, uh, uh, in his work on ecology, showing the pagan view of ecology. And this fed, this was one of many things that fed the anti-Semitism of, of uh, the Nazis, because both Jews and Christians go back to the creation mandate here to develop God's world, the world that he gave us to go out and uh, explore, to discover what all of the different natural resources are, and then to come up with ways to develop and utilize those natural resources. So that involves education, it involves exploration, it involves uh, developing technology, and all of these things are designed to improve the world that God gave to Adam and Eve and to improve our lives. So this goes back to this uh, mandate in Genesis 128. Some have called this the dominion mandate. I don't call it that. 
because that is the term that is used by uh, post-millennial Christian reconstructionists because they think that we need to bring about this dominion before Jesus will come back. But nevertheless, it is a commandment in the creation order prior to the prior to the fall. So they were told to be fruitful and multiply. So God envisioned at the very beginning that the husband and wife would have children and need to multiply in order to fulfill the mandate to fill the earth and to subdue it. They could not subdue it on their own. So they would have to have a lot of children, and they would have children, and just the generations would would grow before uh, this was fulfilled. And this is seen in uh, the paradise, in the utopia of that uh, of the Garden of Eden. Man was ex- expected to go out and explore and develop and subdue the earth. And that's what is stated here. So he's not just to let it all grow in its original created order just randomly, but he is to develop it, learn all about it, and use it to uh, further enhance his life. So God told them first to be fruitful and multiply. So before there's even a fall, before there... There's uh, are any children, they're expected to have children. They have to have children. They have to have families in order to fulfill this mandate that they're given. So they're told to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it, and to have dominion or rule over all the creatures that God has made. And this just strikes at the heart of the uh, environmentalist, the ecologist who thinks that man's the most horrible thing and Christians and Jews are most horrible because they want to go out and take dominion over the earth and to rule over all of of the creatures. So the pagans want to just see themselves as part of that whole cycle so that they, they have to live and let everything live as, uh, as, as, as it naturally progresses without any outside development whatsoever. In terms of the marriage and the first development of family, we see that embedded in the structure and the development of the story in Genesis 2, 18, 20, and 24. In Genesis 2, 18, we've been told that man, Adam, was originally created alone. That wasn't God's ultimate plan for man. He knew that he needed to have a an assistant, a helper. And so in 2.18, he says, I will make a helper for him. We've seen that that is not a position of servitude. It is a position of assistance to help. And some people in in our modern world say, well, being an assistant is a demeaning position. But being an assistant is not necessarily a demeaning position. God often is said to be our etzer, our assistant, our helper. And so this is something that is a very virtuous position, a very elevated position, something that has a lot of, uh, of responsibility that goes along with it. And then in verse 20, uh, he gives Adam the task of naming the animals, but it's a it's an object lesson so that he'll discover that there's a there's a there are pairs of everything but no pairs of him so he recognizes he needs a counterpart and then god creates the woman from his side and then moses inserts this this is under divine inspiration so it's not moses opinion god's God's making application after the creation of the man and the woman because they don't have parents. So this doesn't apply to them, but it's going to apply to every future generation. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is what starts a family. When a man and a woman become married, they are to leave their parents But actually, the emphasis here is on the man, because the word that is translated man is the word for the the male, uh, that it's more important for the male to leave home than the woman, because he's going to be the head of the house. He's now going to be independent of his family, 
and in independence they set up their family. Now, this is really important because this this is what lays the groundwork for why the family isn't composed of the grandparents and the great-grandparents and all the aunts and uncles and everybody else because when they get married, they leave his family and they set up their autonomous unit. Now, that doesn't mean that they're hostile to their family and they don't get some help here or there, but uh, it's designed to put the responsibility now on the husband who will become the father and he is establishing his own family unit, and he has to accept those responsibilities. So this is the origination of family. Parents, father, mother are going to be then integral and vital to the development and training of the children. So now we come to the next important passage on family, and that's in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6 is part of Moses' last words, his final sermon or message to the Israelites before they go into the land. So he's emphasizing things in the law that are important for them to maintain in order to have a successful civilization once they go into the land. And he starts here with the family. He started already with God, focusing on uh, here, O Israel, the Lord our God is uh, one, or uh, I think it should be translated, and the uh, uh, Tanakh of 1985, the more modern translation, agrees, or I agree with it, whichever you want to put it, that the Lord our God is, uh, is God alone because that's the emphasis in that word. And in the context is a, is, is a diatribe against idolatry, but Yahweh, our God, is God alone. He is not part of any sort of polytheism. And then Moses moves from addressing God, because he's the foundation of all thought and foundation for this civilization, and he moves to the role of the family. And he says in verse uh, 6, these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. So what he means by that, the heart is the seat of your thinking. It's the the center of a person's being. It's not talking about the physical heart. It's talking about the center of his being. Uh, the word heart is only used a couple of times to refer to the organ in our body where it's uh, in a couple of places it talks about somebody being uh, having a, a spear thrust through their heart couple of instances like that, but primarily it has the idea of the innermost part of our being. So parents, this is what should be in your heart. This is your thinking. This is your focal point. You're having children. This is what should dominate your planning and your purpose in rearing your children. And Moses says in verse 7, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. That's a metaphor. It's not talking about as the Orthodox Jew have where uh, they wrap uh, their uh, forearms and they have a uh, pouch on the back of their hands where they have a copy of this passage. Uh, That is not what... Uh, Moses means here. He's talking about the the fact that this is to be uh, the center of your thinking. It should affect everything that you do. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. What do you do with your hands? You make things. Everything you produce in life is going to be dominated in, in terms of thinking according to the Word of God. And they shall be frontlets between your eyes. And this is talking about the fact that this is to be in your mind, in your heart. But when he addresses parents, he says, you'll teach them diligently uh, to your parents. Now, does that mean that uh, that the parents need to lead a Bible class with their children 24-7? No. It's talking about the fact that this should be your priority. Your job as a parent is to train your children to think biblically. More than anything else, that is it, to think biblically about everything to think biblically about their activities, to think biblically about their friendships, to think biblically about their values, 
to think biblically about the things that they are studying in school, to think biblically about geography and to think biblically about history and to think biblically about economics and to think biblically about science. I remember the uh, when I was about six years old, uh, excuse me, not when I was six years old, when I was in the sixth grade, the teacher had read a book uh, that was talking about how uh, the solar system came into existence and talking about how uh, the moon what probably was thrown off by the earth and the sun and how it was originally gases and then they uh, the the sun spun up together and that created the sun and then threw off certain things and that created the planets. And I came home and my, when my mother was asking me, because my mother would ask me every day, well, what did you learn in school? And what did you learn here? What did you learn there? And so we, I would talk about it, and I told, told her all about that. She said, I'm not sure that's right. Let's see what the Bible says. And so she had me read Genesis uh, 1, and then she said, is that what God says? And I said, no. And so from that point on, I never bought into evolution. Uh, she just nipped it in the bud because she was right right on it. And in terms of my social life, uh, she made sure that whenever I'd come home and I'd talk about a new friend, she'd say, well, are, are they a believer? And, of course, there were two, that was a two-edged sword because if you went one way and they weren't a believer, then she would talk to me about how to witness to them. And if you went another way and they were a believer, then she would ask some other questions and, you know, where did they go to church and some other things like that. And it was interesting because one of my best friends uh, growing up lived down the street. And from the time we were in the second grade, uh, we were we were friends until um, the end of our uh, junior year in high school. And then he moved away. But years later, he called me up and invited me to go with him out to the Renaissance Festival. Now, the Renaissance Festival is not something that I'm really attracted to, but I hadn't heard from him in many years. So I said, okay, great. And so went out there, and on the way back, he, you know, takes people a while to get to what they're really after. He said, he said, well, Robbie, how do I know I'm saved? And I said, because when we were seven years old and we were becoming friends, my mother wanted to know if you were a believer, and so I made sure you understood the gospel. And I explained to you, and you said that's what you believed. And so I know you, you, you are a believer. And that was a great comfort to him. He had just finished reading Hal Lindsey's book, Late Great Planet Earth, and that sort of got him a little scared about what might happen in the future, I guess. And... Um, Anyway, so that was that was the comfort there. So it's important for parents to be able to take advantage of situations every day that come up with your kids so that you can bring a divine viewpoint perspective to that. Uh, and so this doesn't mean that every minute of every day you're teaching the Bible to your kids, but that you are... Uh, conscientious and focused on the situations developing in their lives so that you can use those as teaching opportunities to bring their focus on the Word of God, not in a way where you're browbeating them with it, but in a way where it just becomes a natural part of con conversation. But in order to do that as a parent, your soul has to be so saturated with the Word of God so that you can spot those opportunities and take advantage of, of those uh, particular opportunities. And this is a way that you will uh, train up children. And that's, that, that's your primary task, is to train your children uh, to think biblically. And we have to think biblically about children. We live in a world today when, because of the narcissism in our culture going back at least three generations, I don't think that my parents' generation, which is often called the greatest generation, I don't think they were, but they're often called that because they grew up in the Depression. Uh, my dad was picking cotton in a cotton field outside of Lubbock, Texas, when he was seven years old to help his mother just so they could put food on the table. Uh, th that was hard, and uh, it was a tough life for many, many people. 
but they learned responsibility. They learned to make do in difficult circumstances. Uh, little did they know that that was training that generation to be able to go to war and to protect this country and to win the Second World War. But when they came back, they didn't want their children to face all these difficulties and hardships that they had. And so they they didn't do as good a job training training them and focusing them on on bib- biblical truth, and they spoiled their children. And so those spoiled brats were out uh, demonstrating in the '60s against uh, the Vietnam War, and they were the ones who are now uh, leaders in many cases. They're in their 70s, and late 60s and 70s, and they're leading us down this horrible path. Uh, path to socialism because they uh, did not really understand the importance of I- any of these divine institutions. And so that's one of the things that we have to uh, recognize in terms of making decisions when we vote is that when parents reject their role and responsibilities as spiritual teachers and trainers, not only do their children suffer, but the nation will suffer because it will be composed of children who do not operate on truth. And so they don't understand that responsibility. In terms of today's generation, a Pew poll that came out in 2018 found that only 56% of those under 30 think that voting is significant. In contrast, 92% of citizens over 65 understand voting's important. Now, I'm kind of thankful for that because most of these kids under 30, I don't want them to vote because they don't have the right value system. But the result is a narcissistic culture fails to produce good generation. I think the greatest generation was my grandparents' generation. They're the ones that raised and reared the kids that made it through the um, made it through uh, the depression and made it through uh, World War II because of the, their character, because of the values they had, and because their sense of responsibility. Now, valuing children is important. Psalm 127, 3 through 5. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. In the parallelism of the passage, heritage and reward are, are synonymous. And it's an inheritance. The children are for your future. That's the idea there. An inheritance is that which you have uh, in the future. A reward is that which is given to you uh, as a form of blessing. So it doesn't say some children, although a lot of people sort of inadvertently read it that way, that some of your children are a heritage from the Lord. Well, we're not going to talk about the other ones. And and why are they a heritage because of verse 5, excuse me, verse 4, that says, like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. I think that there's one observation there I don't hear too many people make, and that is children of one's youth. That that the older you get, the more difficult I think it is to spend as much time uh, with children because of energy factors and other things like that, other distractions, and you remember a lot more about being a, a kid when you're when you're younger. Uh, but the in, the importance of this is the metaphor, uh, the uh, description there, like arrows in the hands of a warrior. Arrows are what a warrior uses to defeat the enemy. Arrows are his way of influencing and winning the battle. And so when you are a believer and you are rearing your children according to the word of God, you're going to send them out into the world to influence the world in terms of a divine viewpoint, in terms of God's, God's word. And so that has an impact on the next generation and on your nation and on your on your culture. And so verse 5 says, well, happy or blessed is the man who has his quiver full of them. Uh, You're not going to do a whole lot in a battle if you only take one arrow into the battle. But if you take a quiver full, then, and I'm not talking about the fact that you need to have 10, 12, or 15 kids. Uh, You can make up your own mind as to how many you have. I know there's a movement that says that 
that uh, families should have as many as they can. God never says stop, but not God never said be irresponsible either. You're supposed to use uh, good common sense as to what you can handle, what you can support, and how you can uh, do it. I've known of some people who've had a lot of children, and I'm talking about uh, in the teen range, and they think everybody else ought to do it, but they seem to be able to ha- have the capacity to handle that many children, and a lot of people don't do real well with just one. So you need to know what your capacity is and what you're able to accomplish and and go back to divine institution number one and be be responsible. So the point of this imagery is not how many you have, but the fact that they go forth as an influence and they will not be ashamed. If you have done your job, you won't be ashamed. Now, this is not talking as an absolute. This is talking relatively. We all know that there are wonderful parents who have worked very hard and have trained and taught their children the truth, and their children rebel against it. And on the other side, you have parents who haven't done anything and yet their children have positive volition and they turn out uh, a whole lot better than anybody ever expected. And that's just, just the grace of God. Uh, when we look at the Bible, we see the Exodus generation. The Exodus generation was spoiled while they were in Egypt. And even though slavery was difficult and miserable, somebody else took care of all of your needs. You didn't have to work for everything. You just did your job every day, and then the government gave you a certain amount. It's a form of socialism. Socialism is nothing more than the enslavement of a population by the government who doles out everything, and nobody really has to assume responsibility for anything. And I know there are some people who don't think that's correct, but I've spent a lot of time in former socialist countries, and it's amazing how these Ukrainians and Russians and Belarusians who've come over here uh, from uh, from the former Soviet Union and things I've become used to and things that you've become used to, they just barely sniff and go, oh, you're socialist. I didn't know this country was so socialist. This is terrible. And we're getting that way more and more because we let the government take responsibilities away from us and away from the family that are indeed the family's responsibility. So there will be those exceptions. That that Exodus generation was redeemed by God and they complained and they whined and they disobeyed God, and they rebelled against Moses, and they rebelled against God over and over again so that God said, I'm not taking you into the promised land. You all are going to have to die off before I take you into the promised land, and I'll have to wait on your next generation. So I'm not going to ask for you to raise hands and take a poll, but those parents were so self-absorbed, and they were so miserable, and they were so... Uh, such whiny babies the whole time there in the wilderness, do you really think they were good parents? I don't think they were good parents, not at all. But the next generation that that came up, they weren't trained or taught well because their parents were failures. But that next generation is the conquest generation. They trusted God. See, sometimes parents do a really lousy job and God graces them out with children that are uh, mature and wise and spiritual. And sometimes you have just the opposite. You have parents who do everything right, and then there are children who still have their own volition, and they exercise that volition to reject uh, what God has has given them. And so we see here uh, the emphasis is on the fact that, that children are a blessing Children are given by God, and they are designed to take care, go out and take care of the enemies in in the gate. And I think that's an important thing to understand because we have a, a, a lot of children who are brought up now in homeschool situations, and they're out uh, in the in the business world and in the political wor- world, and we're going to see more of this. Uh, 
because they are more trained, they are more educated, they understand history, and they, uh, there are some in Congress that are homeschooled, and, and we thank God for them because they understand the truth, and they have been uh, well-trained by, by, uh, by their parents. Now, one other thing that we have to understand is in terms of the areas of growth in a child. We can go to Luke 2.52 to get a framework for this. Luke 2.52 is, gives us the, the Bible's take on Jesus' life after uh, the episode when he uh, was brought back by his parents when he was about two years old uh, to, to Nazareth. And from that point until we see him, uh, we see him uh, at the beginning of his ministry going to John the Baptist, there's only this summary and then the episode of him staying behind when his parents took him uh, probably for his bar mitzvah at the at the temple and he stayed behind and had a, a fascinating discussion with all of the uh, rabbis and the Sadducees and the Pharisees who were astounded at his wisdom. This is all we have. Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. So we have four areas of growth, and every human being goes through these four areas of growth. Wisdom refers to his intellectual development. His, he had to learn everything just like a human being. He, is, he was incarnate. He is still fully God. He doesn't, uh, didn't leave his deity behind. He doesn't put it off. It is just uh, turned, it is sort of blocked off from his humanity, so he has to grow up just like every other human child. He had to learn to talk. He had to learn uh, to read and understand the Torah. But because he is without sin, he is able to do all of these things in just a remarkable way. So he has his intellectual development as he learns, uh, learns the Old Testament. He learns the Bible. He memorizes all of these things, learns all of the things that his parents taught him and all about the world around. He was probably, um, he was probably taught carpentry, the building trade skills by his father, Joseph. You know, the word for carpenter isn't a word that we think of a carpenter as somebody who works with wood. This would be more along the lines of a construction engineer, that he, Joseph would have worked with stones. So, you know, if you, those of you who've been to Israel know that, 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 uh, that rock is the, the, the national flower. And there are these huge stones and boulders everywhere, and they use that to build with. And it's a lot like out in uh, central Texas. So he's a, he's a construction engineer. He built things. He used wood. He used stone. He used whatever the tools were there. And Jesus would have apprenticed to him and helped him uh, uh, along the way. So that helped him to develop in his intellectual development and also in his physical growth because he grew physically. So parents are responsible for the uh, intellectual development of their children and for their physical health and their physical development. And then the fourth area is favor with God. I mean, the third area is favor with God. So that's the, his development of his spiritual life and his walk with God. And then the last area is the social life with other people. And he grew in favor with God and man, so we see these see these four areas, and so we have to understand that children are born today, um, and they have a sin nature. That they are born, they they are nothing more than a sin nature wrapped in flesh. Their orientation is sin. Their orientation is self-absorption. The first thing they start doing is as soon as they get hungry, they want to cry to be fed. They want to be cried to be clean. They want to be uh, cried to all, everything, and it's all about them. They are the center of their world, and it is the responsibility of parents to train them to control those self-centered desires. And uh, if you just leave a child alone and you don't give them any guidance, direction, or any training, some parents wait until they're four or five years of age, and they've waited too long, and that's a huge mistake. You have to start from the very, very beginning. 
their brain is absorbing all all the stimuli that's going at them. So you talk to them. No, we don't do that. When you get older, you'll do this. And when you get older, you'll do that. And you're shaping their thinking in many, many different ways. Every child is born self-centered. They're born ignorant. They're born ill-mannered. And they have no knowledge or wisdom. But they have to increase in wisdom and in stature in favor with God and man to have a social life. They have to learn good manners. They have to learn to be polite. They have to learn how to eat without just grabbing food in their fists and shoving it in their mouth. They have to learn respect for others. They have to learn to restrain things. And they only learn that if parents are teaching that to them. And too many parents are too busy with what they're doing to take the time to train them from a very early age. They don't understand how important the first three years really are in the training and development of a child in all of these particular areas. Now, I'm going to wrap up here before we get into Proverbs. Proverbs talks a lot about the training of children and focus on that. So we'll come back to that next time. We're looking at at this divine institution, number three, of family, because the family is the responsible unit for the training and development of a child. It is not the government's responsibility. It's not the church's responsibility. It's not the grandparents' responsibility or the aunt's and uncle's responsibility. It's the responsibility of the mother and the father uh, to train up their children and especially to teach them to think about everything biblically so that they can glorify God in their lives. Father, thank you for this opportunity to look at this uh, so important, a, uh, a divine institution, the family, and especially as it relates to parenting and to uh, rearing children so that they have the ability to live as productive, mature adults who can live lives that glorify you. Father, we pray that you would use this message to challenge a lot of parents, to challenge a lot of grandparents, to just challenge uh, whoever listens to the fact that we have to turn back to a biblical concept of the family if we're going to have a future of our country and a future in our civilization and that there may be future stability. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.